0: good afternoon sorry for starting a little bit late but that means we'll uh we'll run a few minutes late as well so hopefully you get a chance to ask some and uh, A at the end the last 15 minutes or so um in the meantime i want to thank you very much for coming for joining us at hudson um, my name is lee smith i'm a fellow here at hudson i want to introduce um, the rest of the the rest of the panel, to my immediate right, is Ilan Berman, Senior Vice President for the American Foreign Policy Council. Ilan is uh, and a faculty member at Missouri State University's Defense and Strategic Studies Department. He's an expert on regional security in the Middle East, Central Asia, and the Russian Federation. To his right is a uh, Hudson colleague, a senior fellow here at Hudson, Halal Fradkin. uh uh, where he directs the center on islam democracy and the future of the muslim world he is founder and co-editor of current trends in islamist ideology the leading journal on contemporary islam islamism and to his right uh, another hudson colleague here is michael pregent Um, and mike uh, it was mike's idea to convene this very important uh, and i believe very useful panel um Mike is a former intelligence officer with expertise in the Middle East and North Africa, political and security issues, counterterrorism analysis, stakeholder communications, and strategic planning. We're going to, um, we're going to start this this panel this afternoon uh, titled Iran's Land Bridge, Countering <coughs> a Growing Influence in the Middle East. And way we're going to start that is, I believe, that Mike is going to show Exactly what this looks like, so you'll understand what we're talking about when we're talking about um, the spread of Iranian influence throughout the region. So, Mike, if you'd like to kick, a, kick it off, and then we'll and, and then we'll uh, have some more comments um, after Mike's after Mike's uh, explanation here. Thank you. All right. Yeah. Can you pull up that uh, map? All right. Just want to quickly lay out what the
1: land bridge actually looks like. Hope you can see this. So. I'm gonna focus on the, the Iraq part because that was the part that wasn't in place. It's now it's now in place. Land bridge actually has three routes. If you look at the solid green lines, you're actually looking at their preferred route to go into Syria through Al-Tanf or Al-Khayam. All roads lead through Baghdad. The alternate route, of course, goes north through Mosul, Sinjar, into the Rabia checkpoints. So this, this land route is already set up. The Iranians are able to use this now because they're being protected by Ministry of Interior Forces from the Iraqi Security Forces, also the Iraqi Army, and also the Hashem al-Shabi. So this is already set up. These red areas represent traditional areas where we could actually uh, (coughs) embed and empower resistance to this, meaning the Sunni Awakening, the Sunni Sons of Iraq, traditional Iraqi Army units like the 7th Iraqi Army Division that was pretty much responsible for this area here. And up here, of course, you had the 2nd and 3rd Iraqi army divisions that were led by Kurds at the time. So these are traditional areas, and I recently came back from Iraq, three week, three week little trip, or, and I talked to Sunni tribal leaders from Ramadi and also from Mosul, and I expected to get a little bit of a revenge factor. They are, at this point, acquiescent. Uh, they believe that Iran is the strongest tribe in Iraq at this time, and they're looking for U.S. to counter that, and we're not. So land bridge that everybody talks about is actually in position, ready to be used, and is being used now. So we'll leave it at that
0: for now, and we'll pull it up later in the, uh, in the presentation. Mike, thanks very much. That that's, It really is important to see what it looks like. And um, ha- Mike, having been there, <laughs> knows not just what it looks like, but uh, but what it feels like and what's going on there. So thanks very much. Thank you. Uh, Ilan, if you'd like to uh, – if you'd like to make some introductory remarks.
2: Uh, I'd be happy to – and thank you, Lee, and uh, thank you, Mike, and thanks Hudson for having me. It's always nice to come talk about this, uh, in particular because uh, I, I'm firmly convinced that we're in a decisive moment uh, because Iran very clearly is building an insurgent empire. Uh, two years ago already, uh, Iranian leaders in their speeches and their discussions were talking about the fact that, in addition to Tehran, they were in control of four capitals in the Middle East. They were in control of Sana'a, Yemen. They were in control of Damascus, Syria, in control of Beirut, Lebanon, and in control, increasingly, of Baghdad, Iraq. And I think, if you fast-forward that tape, uh, what you see is that uh, Iran's capabilities, Iran's ability to influence and shape politics in those places (laughs) is stronger now Two years on than it was uh, back then uh, but it, an insurgent empire requires a couple of things it requires supply lines uh, and so uh, i'm delighted that sort of mike was able to provide a, a visual of sort of what this actually looks like but uh, for an iranian uh, capability sort of a capability <laughs> of moving uh, further and further west uh into the levant uh requires a sustainable transit route Uh, By the way, uh, we're talking today about the the Iranian land bridge, but there's actually two. There's two routes. There's an air bridge also. Uh, For those of you that have followed this issue, there is uh, a fairly regular transit and shipment of uh, irregulars uh, into the Syrian theater via Iranian national air carriers like Mahan Air and and Iran Air. Um, And this has been documented in a number of places, including in the Weekly Standard, uh, uh, of which you're an editor. but the land uh, route, uh, the land bridge, is, I think, uh, more important because it's more permanent. Uh, in the event of a conflagration uh, that involves uh, Israel, uh, the US-led coalition, any constellation of forces, it's reasonable to expect that the air bridge is at least going to be temporarily disrupted in the event of hostilities, in the event of uh, aerial strikes. I think it's far harder to think about a disruption of a land bridge, especially as the land bridge expands, becomes more permanent. Um, and. Sort of the, the second thing I think we need to talk about is the scope of forces that Iran can move via this land bridge, via these transit routes. Uh, and here I think the shape of the Shiite uh, irregular contingent that's active in Syria requires some elucidation because it's much larger than is most commonly understood. The back of the envelope calculation that uh, experts uh, experts in, in Sunni Islamist terrorism Uh, talk about a lot is uh, roughly 32,000. That's the number of uh, foreign fighters that have come from North Africa, from Europe, from the Russian Federation, and elsewhere uh, to join the ranks of the Islamic State in Syria and Iraq since uh, mid-2014, roughly. Uh, the, and that tends to be what we think about because we, we see the sort of the ill effects, the pernicious second order and third order effects when these people return home. This is what uh, most Western governments are really focused on. But the reality is that the secondary foreign fighter stream, the Shiite foreign fighter stream that's organized and funded and embedded by Iran, is actually considerably larger. Uh, the U.S. intelligence community uh, unofficially estimates that what we're looking at is a foreign fighter flow uh, on the order of 42,000. Uh, The Israeli intelligence community uh, estimates that it's significantly higher. It's about 70,000. And uh, on the high end of the spectrum, uh, to be verified, uh, there are private estimates that estimate the standing force as well as the reserve force to be as high as 200,000. And this is an enormous uh, sort of uh, an armed force of enormous size. Uh, Just to give you a comparison, 200,000 is roughly the size of the Afghan army. Uh, so we're, we're looking at a mobilization that is very significant. It is much larger than the, uh, the Sunni mobilization that's taken place, uh, and it's something that we're going to have to deal with uh, as sort of as we move uh, into a period of really pushing back against uh, Iran, uh, not only on in the context of the nuclear deal, but also in the context of pushing back against Iranian influence, deterring Iran, Iranian capabilities. Uh, that force increasingly needs to move somehow. And uh, the way Iran has uh, positioned itself, the way Iran has uh, sort of enabled a rat line to move into the Syrian theater, uh, has a lot to do with uh, the land capabilities, the freedom of movement that they have in places like Iraq, uh, that allow them to sort of to move territory, to move materi- uh, to move personnel, to move materiel uh, in a way that makes them a sustainable threat further and further uh, into the Levant than they've ever been.
0: Elan, thanks very much. And you hit on a point, which I'm sure we will be coming back to. Um, throughout the introductory remarks and later in our conversations. But when you're talking about the size of the Sunni foreign fighters, I mean, I believe that uh, the way that the administration, this one and the previous administration, perceived it is that the Sunni fighters are the key threat to American interest and American allies right now in the region. Um, and so you touched on that point, and again, I'm sure that's something that we'll, we'll come back to later. Halal, if you would... Um, if you would
3: follow up. Thanks. And thanks, uh, Lee, for sharing this and Michael for organizing it. Thanks for being on it. I wanted to say uh, one word about the the overall context here, uh, which was raised, I think, uh, in an event you chaired on Monday here, and that was, what's the nature of the the struggle between us and and Iran? And it was framed uh, earlier this week in terms of the question, is this a zero-sum game between us and Iran in the, in the region. Um, and I, have, I wanted to make a couple of observations about this. Of course, there's the question uh, of principle. Uh, is, there, is it a zero-sum game in principle? And then what are the practical considerations for how it is uh, prosecuted? And one simple point, uh, but I think important to remember, because this is what we're about, Uh, Is that from the point of view of Iran, this is a zero-sum game, and it's a zero-sum game for the because of their understanding of themselves, of what the regime is for, and and constituted by, and and just as important, their understanding of us, uh, the United States in particular, um, which is not simply, as I think, is often understood uh, thought, um, a a country that uh, has landed itself in the Middle East and has no business being there. It doesn't really have an interest there because it's so far away. Uh, Their conception of us, that's true as far as they're concerned, but it's also that we're a regime that is uh, fundamentally illegitimate, um, both in terms of the way in which we're governed and also our ambitions and also our way of life. The Iranians like to speak a great deal about the toxicity of our way of life, meaning by that our our liberalism, essentially. And um, the other aspect of uh, their characterization of us is usually the term global arrogance, which means, as far as they're concerned, that we have uh, usurped not merely the privileges of uh, other human beings, but uh, usurped those of God. So from their point of view, there is really no quarter that should be given to us if they were in a position to, to do so now. Um, there also. Uh, the question then is, though, what does this practically mean for the present uh, in the Middle East? And we've come to focus on the land bridge issue. I have uh, among other things. I want to make a couple of comments about that. But I also want to ask a, uh, a couple of questions, both of Michael and of Elon, on as. Uh, which I'll let hang out there and you can answer them in a minute. Um, on the use of the land bridge itself, what its purpose is, uh, I have the impression that its principal u- utility to Iran would be in terms of large equipment, tanks, artillery, which can be moved by plane but is expensive. Bringing in people by plane is obviously much less expensive, and they've been doing a lot of it. They've also had to bring in missiles, artillery, and tanks by plane, but it's what would be different in the circumstances with the land bridges that um, uh, they would be able to, to uh, resupply or supply in the first place. Uh, Kinds of equipment for uh, pursuing their objectives and also uh, consolidating their control that are uh, they couldn't do before, relatively usually. That leads to my second question: Is is that uh, simply an asset as far, as far as we would be concerned, or is that also present a liability for them? Uh, in other words. Um, it's you know in one sense it's relatively easy to attack uh, an air bridge on the other hand it's also hard because you don't exactly know what's in the planes but when when it comes to a land bridge you you have much better intelligence on what's there and whether that isn't a, a problem for them um, so long as we have any interest in, in interdicting uh, right. what go, moves along that land bridge and i wanted to ask you about that and, and connected with that, the degree to which it is crucial that the consideration you mentioned before that um, they have so suppressed the Sunni population in the relevant areas, because um, after all, the land bridge goes through what used to be called enemy territory, whether that is, um, whether they have to go further than that at this point, whether they don't really require uh, population movements in order to make it even more secure I think the question uh, you posed for the whole talk was you know what can we or should do about it and um, uh, one one enormous problem uh, I have in, in addressing that question is I have uh, I think we all have very little uh, knowledge about what the administration is thinking about this um, I think earlier this week general McMaster uh, if it wasn't general McMaster it was general mattis um, was questioned about our plan for all of this and said he couldn't say anything about it but then implied that there was... In fact, a plan or strategy. This is consistent with what people have in the administration have said before that we don't want to telegraph what we're going to do, and perhaps there is some really um, a full and developed thinking about what one might do. Absent knowing what what that is, uh, all, I think all I can observe at this point are two two things. One is. In the, again, I refer to the earlier discussion this week. It seemed to me that, uh, there were proposed in that discussion two possible ways of interdicting this land bridge, uh, by the speakers, uh, by my colleagues, our colleagues, uh, Michael Duran and Peter Rao. One involved essentially establishing a, a, a substantial base uh, east of the Euphrates, maybe east of Dara but maybe a little bit further south in Mayadin or other places along the river, which would be effectively a base from which to block or or threaten anyway the, the land bridge. Uh, the other the other possibility that was proposed was something uh, that would involve. Uh, Creating a a front, a southern front against the land bridge, the southern front being along the Jordanian border and so forth. Can you bring up the map? Just kind of leave it up, I guess. Um, And that was combined, I think, with the suggestion that some of the enforcement, I mean, we do actually or have had had troops along that border in a base called, at a base at uh, at Al-Tamf, we also had a base in Zakhaf, Uh, which the the troops there have been withdrawn. So the, I mean, both could be applied, uh, but uh, they looked a little bit like alternatives. Uh, uh, And I just, I won't go on much further, but I want to say what were considered to be the advantages of the two possibilities. As far as the base was concerned, a real base, an American base, what was being proposed was a very, a, a really substantial force, something at least on the order of a brigade, three thousand to five thousand men, and all the supporting stuff. Uh, the advantage uh, of that uh, um, uh, approach <coughs> was partially that we would be have a substantial force, and also that we would be able to either rely, not totally rely upon, or we could altogether dispense with the allies we are uh, allied with at the moment, mainly the Syrian Democratic Forces, and, uh, large, which is largely controlled by the YPG. Um, the advantage of the, the other possibility uh, was the notion that, along the southern border, was that, well, there are parties there that might have their own interest in uh, in interdicting this uh, land bridge Um, namely Jordan and Israel and that they might themselves have what were called red lines Uh, Israel has has enunciated certain red lines and that Jordan might have some as well and that um, we might be able to count on them as allies in their own interest they would be acting in their own interest but in our interest as well so long as um, we um, uh, we were prepared to to support uh, their notion of their red lines and their actions, um, I want to say one final word about the first plan. Uh, it seems to me to suffer from two uh, problems. One is first whether the American public can be would be supportive of that level of commitment now for a whole variety of reasons, which I, actually I don't have to explain to anyone in this audience and probably any audience, period, uh, given the experience of the last 15 to 16 years. The other problem with it, which uh, came up in the uh, in the discussion, was that this proposal was supposed to have uh, an, an additional benefit, and that was... <clears throat> to um, provide for a a full alliance, a regional Sunni alliance against Iran that would include and be especially uh, dependent upon uh, an alliance with the involvement of Turkey. The Turks are, uh, we need to have them, and we can have them, but in order to have them, we need to get rid of the Kurds, especially the Syrian Kurds. Um, I think that just doesn't make any sense whatsoever at this point. Um, It seems to me obvious that at this point, that uh, under the current um, um, government of uh, President Erdogan, um, there are a couple of assumptions that were made that somehow uh, Turkey is, is very interested in in uh, opposing Iran and that it doesn't see its interests conjoined with Iran. I think that's dubious given the fact that this current regime is an Islamist regime and has already indicated many times that it shares a certain amount of uh, um, perspectives and interests with Iran. But the second thing is the unreliability of uh, Turkey under this government. to have an ally means, in these circumstances where the fight is really a mortal one, means to be able to rely on their goodwill and rely on their capacity. And it seems to me that neither is obvious in the case of Turkey at this point. And I could elaborate on that, but I think I'm a little over my time. I only want to mention one, one sort of proof of this, of this week. Um, we have a, there is an American Christian pastor. Who has been under arrest for something like 15 months? He lived in Turkey forever and ever, never uh, was never considered to be a, a problem. He was arrested 15 months ago um, and charged with being a member of the Gulen F- network. Uh, I'm sure this is completely bogus, um, but, um, uh, and we've been asking for his him to be released. Um, On Monday or Tuesday, uh, President Erdogan said, well, yeah, we could release him um, in exchange for Gulen. In other words, this ally that we're proposing to have takes Americans as hostages um, to to do its business. And uh, that's not the kind of government you can rely on. I'll stop there. Um, Thanks, Al i I'd,
0: first of all actually if everyone could please turn off your phones because it's it's it, it interrupts the speakers up here and it's not fair to them and the rest of the people in the audience who want to hear so please turn your phones off now if you haven't already um thanks a lot and and i i I think this is probably not the best venue to go into turkey stuff r- right now though I think that there are different things that we can talk about regarding that and one of the th- one of the ways that I would want to come back and talk about that later is when we're talking about the land bridge and when we're talking about different initiatives that the united states might take i think it's important to realize the united states is helping build the land bridge the united states is not a bystander and in a sense the united states helped frame turkey's position regarding the syria conflict this is not to justify other things that Erdogan has done. But I think we need to see what's happened during the Obama years and continuing now during the Trump years, the different ways that we are, we're not bystanders, we're contributing, we're effectively allied with Iran. And that's part of the issue with the land bridge. No doubt,
3: uh, Lee, but I will just say this, that the, the whole, you know, the issue is what are, what, our, what is our intention to do with respect to Iran? The land bridge is, when all is said and done, just a part of that. And so uh, that's where all of these other considerations came, come in and came in in the earlier discussion, that's all. all
1: right. uh, Mike, if yeah, you would like to... Quickly, I'm just going to go back to the map and know that's unorthodox. Okay. I think it's the best way to answer ah, your questions great. and just talk about this for a second. Um, so the question, I think the best way for me to do my intro to this is to basically answer your question. So the land bridge is is currently in place. What can we do about it? Well, we've actually facilitated this by ignoring it. And one of the things that I'm I'm kind of putting on my former intelligence officer hat here, what would I brief a general? What would I brief a a decision maker? Um, We have to stop listening to all is well in Iraq diplomats and all is well in Iraq intelligence officers. Um, Brett McGurk continues to say the Iraqi military is not sectarian. It is not a tool of the Iranians. The Hashem al-Shabi... Are not that big a deal, and the Iranian influence in Iraq is exaggerated. I disagree with all of those points, and I'll tell you why. The land bridge is already in place. And to your question, I'm not saying we're going to start seeing Iran start from here and move all the way across Iraq to go into Syria. They already have a proxy force. That proxy force is the Hashid al-Shabi. That proxy force is Kitab Hezbollah. That proxy force is Assab al Haq and other groups. They have already exported culpability, meaning they've outsourced IRGC violations of UN Security Council resolutions to the Iraqi army, to Iraqi militias. There are already Iraqi militias directed by Qasem Soleimani to be in Syria. Now, when we talk about the land bridges, and my two colleagues, <laughs> Michael Duran and Peter Roth, talk about, talked about, what we can do up here in this area. This is Iran's focus down here, and this is the area the Russians are saying we're not supposed to be able to control. These are the areas that Russian MPs actually decide who gets to come into these de-escalation zones. And one of the things, when I talked about the 7th Iraqi Army Division earlier, and I hope some intel people are looking at this in the intel community, and I hope you're upset about it, because I'm happy if you are. The 2nd Iraqi Army Division didn't get tasked to defeat ISIS. The 2nd Iraqi Army Division that was based out of Ramadi and Al-Ambar got sent to the border to secure the border. That 7th Iraqi Army Division allows the transit of Iraqi Shia militias into Syria. ISIS pockets still exist here and here, but they serve a purpose. They allow the repositioning of forces into those areas under the, it's it's a legitimate mission, defeat ISIS, but it's also to continue to move uh, forces through. If you're in the intelligence community or you're reporting to a decision-maker who cares about Iran's influence in Iraq and this land bridge, you need to start looking for pre-positioning of equipment. Remember, when a, when an Iranian tank crosses the border, it's not going to be flying an Iranian flag anymore. It's going to be flying an Iraqi flag. When the militias push equipment, rockets, and materials through this land bridge, they're flying Iraqi flags. They have Iraqi tanks in those columns, Iraqi armored personnel carriers. We're not gonna have a satellite image of Iranian flags rolling across Iraq, and we wouldn't target it anyway, and Iran knows we wouldn't target that. The The issue is we, we, we can't lie to ourselves about what's being facilitated by our obfuscation of the role in Iraq, uh, Iran and Iraq, and the role of these militias. This is their focus, this is where uh, we've actually killed iraqi shia militia members we've actually killed uh revolutionary guard corps commanders in this area on the on the uh, the order of if we're attacked we can do something about it these weren't parenthesis strikes they were basically testing our resolve at these bases they want this these are secondary routes this is the easiest way in they <coughs> control this this is what they already use for their religious ceremonies and their Hajj's. that's already in place so this part is also the best place for us to interdict it. This is where we have traditional allies. This is where we we can use the leverage of US Treasury, US Commerce, uh, our intel community to provide evidence to the administration, our military, to be able to tell Baghdad, you're facilitating IRGC violations of existing UN Security Council resolutions by allowing and facilitating the export of IRGC militias into Syria. They're going into Shoreb Assad, but they're also going into Lebanon. They're also, the plan is to go into, you know, to be able to threaten Israel as well. The reason this land bridge is so important is because it didn't exist seven years ago. Or it existed, but it still had pockets where it couldn't go. Um, There was a resistance in Ramadi starting in 2013. Remember, the Iraqi government left Ramadi, Fallujah, um, and Mosul alone for two and a half years. They were actually worried about shoring up the Shia sectarian fault lines in and around Baghdad and these other areas before they started focusing in on the land bridge. We have to stop. You know, I went to Iraq recently, and I went there to have my mind changed. I wanted to see what some colleagues in the think tank community and the intel community tell me. Let me know if I go over. I'm just going to no, take two minutes. Good, I went there to get my mind changed. I want to see what you see. So if you want to see a professional Iraqi military that a lot of people in the IC and a lot of people in think, to, not a lot of people, I'm talking about three, actually, <laughs> say that say that uh, the Iraqi military is not sectarian, it's a, it's a unity military. It, it is not. But I went there. I said, okay, change my mind. Show me. So if you want to see a professional Iraqi military working with the coalition, you can see it. But you have to ignore the room full of Iranian advisors that I saw at the Nineveh Operations Center right across. You have to ignore the Shabi checkpoints I saw in Mosul. And, and so so I, you know, I'm a researcher from Hudson. How do, how do you get into Mosul? You, you pay a taxi driver. So you get in the taxi, you go there. I had more trouble getting through Osayis checkpoints, Kurdish checkpoints, than I did in Mosul. As soon as I got to Mosul, they didn't even look at the car like, go, go. There was no military presence there. It was very limited. Uh, the checkpoints are manned by one or two guys. A vehicle of soldiers rolling around in Mosul without weapons, and every military male I saw in Mosul—and there were probably 50,000 in this one area—all had military haircuts. There, there is, there is room for security backslide. Something, something I've, I've said a long time ago is. The day, after, the day after ISIS is the day before ISIS in a lot of cases. A more disenfranchised Sunni population, more distrust of Baghdad, but I expected to find a revenge factor when I went to Iraq, and I didn't see it. I talked to military generals from Mosul who had had their homes destroyed and were held, held in detention by the Iraqi security forces, and they made their way to refugee camps. They don't want revenge, they want electricity, they want jobs, and they want to go home, but more importantly, they feel abandoned by the United States, Feel abandoned by their government, and they're just exhausted. And it's something I heard in 2007 if you just punish them so bad, you can kill <coughs> them. And this was from a Maliki general that was in charge of the Baghdad Operations Center. And I think they were there. <laughs> they're there. 80% of Mosul, uh, correction, Ramadi was destroyed during the liberation. A city of 500,000 Iraqis destroyed for, what was it, 2,000 ISIS fighters? Mosul, I went to Mosul, and it's 60% destroyed on the west side. Population of 2.2 million prior to the invasion, 1.6 million prior to the operation started. That city was destroyed for four to 6,000 ISIS fires. We haven't done that kind of military operation since World War II. The United States military, uh, you know, our academies, our war colleges not teach that that's how you defeat terrorism by destroying a city and exiting a population. So we see a strategy. They exited the population for a reason. To, to answer your, your question briefly, the land bridge is there. The, the, they're going to start prepositioning equipment there, and I think they're going to outsource the tanks and the equipment to the Iraqi military, because the Iraqi military is going to have American equipment. That American equipment is going to be flying American flags, or, correction, Iraqi flags, and we're not going to target it. And once it gets in here, the flag will change, or it will stay Iraqi. But this is in position, what what can we do about it? If I was an intelligence advisor to Qasem Soleimani, I would say, we're good to go, they're not gonna do anything about this. We're good to go with Iraq, Iraq is secure, Syria is secure because the Americans are focused up here, they're not focused here, and the whole design is to be able to somehow have a logistical and operational network capable of resupplying proxies to eventually threaten Israel and disrupt the Levant.
0: And I'll, I'll stop there no, I, can you stay up yeah, there sure sure no no it's good, it's good. you're like No, it's very interesting <laughs> um let me let me ask a question before we you know before we start speaking as Halel was was referring to a zero a zero-sum game isn't part of the purpose of the land bridge <laughs> I mean it's a game board just to take up more space so whenever the administration says well we're gonna start pushing back against Iran eventually as soon as Isis is finished well, As uh, our friend and colleague, Tony Bedronis, pointed out, my question is from where, especially if the Iranians are starting to push up against the borders of American allies, where is this? And and Halal was also referring to the idea that there may not be a a strategy to push back on Iran. So I guess if you could – Yeah, I'd love to. or, Or not. How does this happen?
1: So I would love to have 2007 McMaster talk to National Security Council advisor, or McMaster, I worked from McMaster in 2007, and our goal was to gauge the level of Iranian influence in the security and intelligence apparatus, and we brought General Petraeus an alarming report. And we basically saw the Shiafication of the Iraqi security forces and the intelligence services. What this administration now is hearing from, from the intelligence community and from, from two guys from two different think tanks that I won't mention <laughs> is that we can use the Iraqi army to stop this. We can use the Iraqi military to stop the land bridge. We cannot. We don't have leverage with Baghdad like we think we do. Uh, the Iraqi army now, if you look at the Ministry of Interior, it's border controlled And these same individuals are actually telling the administration that Iran's premier lieutenant, Hadi al of the Barter Corps, who leads the Hashtag al-Shaabi, could be a good prime minister candidate for Iraq.
3: And to those of us
1: who said this, I
3: mean, I'm sorry, an American animal said
1: this? Yes, oh,
3: okay. yes, yes, Yes,
1: the American person inside the National Security Council said this, and somebody that used to advise or used to be in a Baghdad role in state said this. And it, it, it's, 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 not, it's not the case. Um, again, we have this thing where we're sensitized if we see you a lot. <laughs> if, you, if you wear a suit and you speak English, and you've worked with us for a long time, it's like, oh yeah, so I've had our, of course, Badr's in control of everything. I'm like, well, that's kind of a big deal. And it's, it's as though because it's known, it's not an issue. And if Qasem Soleimani's number one guy is probably Muhendis, and he's the deputy commander of the, of the Hasil shabi his number two guy is Hadi al-Amari, who polls higher than anybody else running for office in Iraq right now. So when the, Administration is told that we can stop the land bridge in Iraq by using the Iraqi military. We cannot. What we can do is is hold Baghdad accountable for IRGC actions, to hold the Ministry of Interior in Baghdad, Ministry of Interior in Iraq, responsible for IRGC violations of existing UN Security Council resolutions, also executive orders that limit what what they can do. We talked about that yesterday. If you can expand on that, that would be great. But that's what the administration is being told. Don't worry about this. We got this. We do not. They got this. And is that good? <laughs> yeah, Alan, yeah, yeah. Even yeah. No, no, no.
2: I, I Actually, just to sort of to, to amplify uh, what Mike was talking about. So the administration, uh, as we know, is sort of uh, in the process of doing a bill on Iran's strategy, trying to figure out what to do with two things, what to do with the JCPOA uh, what the nuclear, the 2015 nuclear deal with Iran, whether to recertify, to decertify, whether there's a middle way, whether we get rid of it, whether we have, it's possible to have snapback sanctions. But that's actually, I think, in the broad spectrum of Iran's strategy, that's actually a very small sliver of the pie because it also is simultaneously trying to conceive of a strategy to deal with everything else. During the Obama administration, we, for lack of a better term, we defined our Iran problem down to focus just on the nuclear issue and uh, disregard everything else. And this is sort of the, the policy vacuum that allowed uh, the Iranian land bridge to grow. Uh, the, this administration, it is, as Hillel said, I think, uh, notoriously opaque in terms of trying to figure out exactly where they stand on strategy. But there are, I think, heartening indications that they are beginning to um, to think a little bit bigger in terms of the Iran strategy. Uh, and in places where they're not, they're being goaded to by Congress. Uh, in over the summer, Congress passed the Countering America's Adversaries Through Sanctions Act. This was the tripartite legislation that imposed new sanctions on Iran, North Korea, and Russia. Okay, can places. I can I just
0: say, I mean, and, and Mike was talking about UN Security Councils. That's great, and it's interesting, but we're also talking about a land bridge, and we're talking about Iranians on the ground, and the United States is helping build that land bridge. Through military operations, so it's not clear to me what congressional action and Security Council <coughs> will do to stop that. I'm, I'm, no, I,
2: so, so I'm, I'm getting, getting. I'm sorry, the, the introduction was too long, but but this was sort of my point. The relevant Iranian uh, additional uh, punitive measures in that legislation against Iran talk about designation of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard as a whole, as a unit, uh, as a foreign terrorist organization. Um, this is sort of a term a legal term of art, uh, whether it's designated through executive order or through the State Department uh, under uh, 1996 legislation. But for, for our purposes, suffice to say, there is a signal from Congress that is telling the administration to define the IRGC more broadly as an illicit actor. And this creates an opportunity for the White House to begin to think a little bit more strategically about precisely what Mike is talking about, uh, about uh, whether we need to change rules of engagement, whether uh, Iranian-supported irregulars and organized groupings like the Hashem al parts of the Hashem al are now off limits. Should they still be off limits? This is something that the administration needs to work through. But this is, I think, very important context for them to have as they begin going into <coughs> deliberations, because it will shape how they define the IRGC
0: problem
2: set.
1: Yeah. And just real quick to your question, what can, what, they're being told not to worry about it in Iraq. So the more they're they're, they're told, we provide evidence of IRGC activity, and and the, ex, the export of of culpability to the Iraqi Army, the Ministry of Interior, uh, the Shia militias. Then then you'll actually, if, if you're sitting there and you care about the land bridge and you care about what Iran's trying to do, you know the UN speech. When, when the president said his main goal was to stop all the other activities outside of the JCPOA, outside of the Aranda that Iran is doing. Well, this is this is that. This is what they're doing. And the one thing you don't do, because there's varying reports whether or not we've given up control of the al Tom border crossing uh, to Iraqi militias or to IRGC-controlled militias. We don't know yet. There are varying reports. But on the day President Trump went to the UN and said, we want to stop all these activities, the Washington Post report said we had just given up control of Al Tump, which is the main their premier crossing point. Well, the question, Mr. President, how do you how do you stop all this when you just don't you don't you don't understand that this is what they want? And and it's just it's just a question. So my, my concern is that the, the voices in Iraq, <clears throat> the American voices in Iraq that are talking to the Iraqi government are are giving Secretary Mattis and the NSC a, a sense of comfort in that we can use the Iraqi army to stop this when, when we can't.
0: Well, were you going to... Yeah, well,
1: I...
3: Um, first, I wanted to be clear that I understood one thing you said, which is the notion that we're helping them build a the language. But by that, I presume you primarily mean that in taking out the Islamic State, we're, yes. we're opening up the territory for them to right. take over and accommodating them in some other ways through the agreements we reach with the Russians and so forth. Um, okay, so I just wanted to be clear about that. We didn't take it back and give it to them. We
1: helped them take it back through their proxies. Right. We didn't take back control of ISIS territory and then give it to them. We facilitated them taking over the ISIS territory with our air Listen, and intel. So yeah, no,
3: I, that's just the, the the difference there. Right. Um the same question is uh, the second thing I wanted to reiterate. Your question, which is, so exactly from where does one right, okay. uh, um, obstruct this? Um, you mentioned the notion of holding the Baghdad government accountable. I'm all for it, but how? In what way? I mean, in what ways? Um, you know, eighteen trillion
1: dollar economies versus four hundred billion dollar economies. Well,
3: fine, but. Um, it remains the case that um, they have to want things from us that we're willing to provide, and um, therefore one has to specify in some way whether, what those things are. Um, I mean, the argument generally made for why we might be able to push back, remarkably enough, not in Syria but in Iraq, is that there is, it is a divided country, uh, or the Shiite community is divided, and that clearly is the case. The, but the, the, there's, say, a very large number of Iraqi Shiites still look to Sistani, and uh, Sistani's position on, on Iranian control is well known. Um, it, the question really is, is there any way to make that resistance effective? Is the vehicle for it uh, Abadi or not? And so forth. But um, its claim... Uh, that we have that those are the, those fissures could be exploited. Yes. Um, your your account, and I think you're probably right that the, the the account of those fissures is um, is too rosy, and especially insofar as it involves the military. Uh, but still, it somehow exists. So, um, if but that would require really very hard thinking on our part. About what we want to accomplish and how we, what the means are, and I'm not saying those things don't exist. It's just that it, it's it's really a little bit more than just saying we're, we're the biggest uh, guy on the block. That's all. Well,
1: we have we have levers
3: that I, don't I want to say one other thing. It's one of the things that makes this, the land bridge issue so crucial. I think is not only its material effect, but the fact that. Um, the issue of pushback in general, and 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 again, not only materially, but in terms of the question of uh, the way in which the region views us, which is it lacks any trust in us. Um, So part of what is involved in whatever we do uh, would be uh, the possibility of reestablishing trust I mean, one of the nice things in the old days was when we were we were the same slightly smaller trillion gorilla. People trusted us, and therefore we didn't have to do uh, lean so heavily on people. Now you have to lean heavily because people don't trust you, and you have to show them that there's really some inclination on your part to uh, to to stay the course, as you found out with your. Uh, Sunni um, contacts in in Western Anbar and other places that uh, until they see something really strong, they won't really believe that much matters. And the pushback uh, even on even when when dealing with the Shiites in Iraq, they have to also have some sense well um, are we going to be here in 12 months, 18 months? Are we going to pull out again the way we did? You know, in in 2011, all of that is part of what how they're looking at us, and has to be factored into how we uh, look right. at them. Well,
1: one of the one of the primary platforms for candidates for the prime minister position in Iraq is how quickly they can exit U.S. forces from Iraq.
3: So, I mean, they, they take a position on that, and, and it's a
1: very popular one. And in, and Maliki, when he went to Moscow, he did. <coughs> Try to form this defense pact between Moscow, Tehran, and Baghdad to exit U.S. forces. I listened to Sputnik radio the next day, and the conversation was between uh, uh, academics in in Moscow, Tehran, and Baghdad. And the first question asked is how quickly can you get the Americans out? It was not a matter of building trust anymore. I, I would say we've lost trust with our Kurdish friends, unfortunately, because of this referendum. Uh, We are a a useful tool for Baghdad, and the leverage should be outsourced. The wild card in this, real quick, is Muqtada al-Sadr has been marginalized by Iran. Muqtada al-Sadr is is an Iraqi nationalist. His his power base in Iraq was, I will not talk to the Americans, and we're anti-Iran. We had to hide it from his followers that he was summoned to Iran, and we'd never outed him that he was there because his followers would get upset and I've heard from credible sources that any time the Iranian national anthem is played, they take a knee. <laughs> and Samara and about okay, too, too soon, too soon, right? We'll do it two weeks from now.
0: All right. So anyway, it won't be funny then. Right.
1: Right. Okay. So, so one of the interesting <laughs> things that Muhtar al-Sadr has done is he actually went to Riyadh, and he talked. You know, he talked to the, the man in power right now, um, and M- MBS. So how can we help? So we al-Assad invited the Saudis into traditionally Iran-held areas, such as Najaf, Samar, and Karbala. That's a good way to offset these things. So what, I would say we shelled the building trust with Iraq, because I think that nobody trusts us anymore. Uh, we ebb and flow. We have no consistent strategic strategy. We've abandoned the sons of Iraq, the awakening. We helped a proxy force, custom uh, Soleimani proxy force, destroy Sunni cities, not completely destroy, but destroy morale, destroy the need to to push back, destroy trust. I guess that's the most important thing. What we can do is we're giving Iraq tanks, weapons, military contracts for a military that Iran can use. So that's a lever. We don't give you these things unless you do this. Um, That's that's, that's a lever. Um, And I'll defer to you on what we can do to Baghdad with those other things. But I think... What Muhtar al-Sadr has done is great. And if you look at the map again, those red-shaded areas going through Ramadi, those Sunni tribes have reached out to Muhtar al-Sadr, looking at him as one of the few Iraqi nationalists to help us out. Um, In a way, we shouldn't empower him because he'll lose credibility. We shouldn't cut cut his legs off if we say we're working with him. It, that doesn't happen if the Saudis are working with him. That doesn't happen if the Jordanians and the Egyptians and other Sunni regional allies are working with him. I would I would advise our Kurdish friends to reach out to Muqtada al as well, in a lot of these ways, and voice your grievances and that we want to say in this country and we're tired of Iran dictating who the prime minister is. So we have we have levers. We're just not attaching anything to those, and we're not calling them levers. Uh, there's too much of this. Uh, everything is is great. I, the, the two guys that. Have the year of the administration say there's there's a rule of law in Iraq and I have a line and block chart here that says this is what the Iraqi military looks like they're not going out and talking to people they don't ask who's populating the ranks and they've marked sensitized and normalized Iran's premier proxy in Iraq and that's the border Corps and if you're saying yeah, yeah yeah we get it that's exactly what they want you to think that's exactly where they want you that border is the is the vehicle we can use. And yeah, we we picked Badr early on because Badr was anti-Saddam, Badr wore suits, spoke English, and would talk to Americans, and that's exactly what they were built for, to engage with the West, to be able to do these things. And we not only facilitated the land bridge, this land bridge by obfuscating the role of Iran, we actually
0: uh, helped the Iranian takeover of Iraq in a lot of ways. Well, that's Elon wants to say something, but yeah, got sure. start, I, by by you talking about gaining trust, and it strikes me that from a certain perspective, and 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 not a very uh not a very refined perspective, but you can see that the you can see it that the United States has been on a fourteen-year campaign against the Sunnis in Iraq. So, when we're talking about when we're talking about when we're talking about trust, it's not just why don't you turn your weapons around just for a little bit on the other guys? <laughs> and that's not happening. Yeah, we got right, it right from right?
1: 2006 that's to 2010, and then we gave it away when we said, take your hands off. And we should take our hands off, but we should have known what we were, we were saying yes to, and that was the, the Sunnis that we, we asked to turn their guns on al-Qaeda and protect their neighborhoods from Shia militias, we're targeted by Baghdad, we're targeted by Iran, we're targeted by ISIS, we're targeted again by Baghdad, we're targeted again by Shia militias.
3: And they don't trust us.
1: But the one place that they are
3: is they're exhausted. uh, I I, I think that, but I just want to reinforce your point. So far, we have taken no step uh, that's anti-Shiite. And that's, uh, unless they're, I I mean, I don't mean Shiite in general, but Iranian Shiite. And unless that happens, then it, there's no changes we now say in the narrative, and, and so the conviction yeah. remains.
2: No, no, I, I think that's actually the perfect segue. So my my big takeaway and sort of my big point uh, from all this is uh, just sort of to, to uh, put emphasis on what Mike is talking about is the grand context that we're talking about here is that the United States does not have an anti-ISIS strategy that does not advantage Iran. Right, everything that every plan that we have ends up with an end state that advantages Iran. The same is true for uh, how we are conceiving politically of Iraq, the end state in Iraq. Until the Trump administration comes up with one, and I would argue that it needs to come up with one soon, you're going to continue to see this drift. And you're also going to continue to see a growing willingness on the part of the White House to countenance alternative outcomes. If you don't stand for something, you fall for everything. So the longer we don't have a vision for how we want Syria to play out, Uh, the more amenable we're going to be when people come to us, like the Russians come to us, and say, here's how we want the political constellation in Syria to look. Uh, And from the Russian perspective, and this is something I work on a little bit, uh, I I think it's a fallacy to assume that the Russians are in charge in Syria. The Russians are not in charge in Syria. Uh, Russia's planning for a long-term presence uh, in the west of the country, in Tartus in the south and Latakia in the north, is entirely dependent upon Iran's largesse. Iran – has articulated a long-term uh, stabilization strategy for Syria that envisions them staying there on an open-ended level. The Russians have not, which means that sooner or later, probably sooner, the Russians are going to have to at least accommodate uh, Iranian interests in uh, a and, and vision for uh, the end state of Syria. And that means uh, that this idea that the administration has, which is that we're going to create a condominium uh, with the Russians, uh, I think you know this is still very viable and it's still being discussed. Uh, we need to understand that the moral hazard that's involved with that is that we're also creating a condominium with the Iranians
0: Let me um, well, let me use that as something that you raised in your introductory remarks when you were talking about the uh, the Sunni foreign fighters why and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you all an opportunity to uh, if you like to answer this question Why is it that the United States decided to target the Sunni foreign fighters instead of the Shia foreign fighters? Why has the preference been and again, I would go back even to 2003 when the Bush administration, if they didn't know, we saw very clearly what happened. The advantage would be tilted at least on behalf of the Shia community, if not necessarily the Iranians, as many people were telling us at the Times. But that's what happened. So why have and why do we continue to point our weapons at Sunnis in Iraq and in Syria as well. Why does this happen, Mike, do you I want to? Sure. Well,
1: we started seeing a, a change. I, I was in Baghdad in 2009, and we started releasing uh, really bad Shia militia members of A.H. and Qatab, Hezbollah, at the request of the Prime Minister and through intelligence reports, really at the request of Qasem Soleimani. And we figured none of this is going to happen. We're not going to release these guys. These guys have actually killed Americans. And, you know, we you know, our, our friend Jay Solomon wrote about this. You know, the, <clears> the outreach to the to the Supreme Leader by the Obama administration. Give us a gesture. Well, I contend that that gesture was releasing anybody that Iran wanted to release from American custody. And, and remember, the the three people I'm really talking about are Leith, Kaz- Leith Kazali, Case Kazali, and Le- 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 Doc Duke from Lebanese Hezbollah. All three with American blood on their hands. All three responsible for uh, implementing a Qasem Soleimani. Directed attack against, directed kidnapping, of five Americans from Karbala who were advisors to the Iraqi military. The operation went wrong. All five, four were executed. One died on the objective. Received a Silver Star after, you know, jumping on a grenade to save some, some friends, and we released those guys. So I contend that, and I'll just I'll just quote Leon Panetta. The administration believed that going against any of Iran's uh, strategic goals in Iraq or Syria would derail the Iran deal. And the Iran deal was key to all of this. If we look at the, the inaction in Syria, it was tied to the JCPOA, and that was before ISIS. And then when ISIS came in, American forces went in, and, and the, the first groups that immediately came off the target list, that were on the target list when we were there for, for seven years, we're now off, and those were Qatab Izbalah, AAH, these were Shia militias, we're no longer on the target list. On the you cannot help list were our Sunni partners that helped us decimate Al Qaeda leadership during the surge, during the awakening. Uh, we did not, we could have stood up a U.S. vetted Sunni force and filled the second and third Iraqi army divisions, and we could have stood up similar, smaller scale awakening and, uh, and Sons of Iraq movements in these key areas that would have quickly turned against ISIS and 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 stayed the Shia militias. There would be no reason for Shia militias north of areas that they wanted to protect. So with that, we began to write. We began to talk about this. For the last three years, do not empower uh, a proxy Iranian force led by Qasem Soleimani. Empower the Sunnis. There's no reason to destroy Sunni cities. There's no reason to exit uh, Sunni's uh, you know displace them internally. There's no reason to do any of that. But the thing is when we had a footprint the, foot, the American footprint was also agreed upon by Baghdad with Tehran's influence five to eight, thousand Americans. so and the force we're training was a heavily militia infiltrated MOI. So I contend uh, I'm not contend, back of the envelope math, our guys are out number 20 to one. the actual Iraqi military they're training, uh, we haven't had any green on blue in Iraq yet, but that's an order away, and that's that's a directed order from Custom Soleimani and his proxies. Uh, our guys are held hostage. This is Leon Panetta said. Hey, listen, our guys are held hostage in, in Iraq because we're advising a a force that custom Soleimani, Soleimani can use to target Americans. Why
0: are they there? Why are, why are they there? Oh, why
1: are we there because we, we had to do something about isis and we, we in order to do that you effectively promote american forces are held hostage all right so i'm an american advisor I was, a, I was an embedded advisor with a kurdish battalion of 500 there's 10 of us there's
0: 500 of them we are targets if they decide they want to take us and in. why well then why are they there Oh, no, it no, no, it no, 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 I answer the I mean, question. You see that there are issues then when policymakers talk about this and Americans say, like, oh, I get it, we're held hostage by the Iranians. And the question would be, right, right. As, as, as you know better than I do, for military films, why, 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 why is would we my situation? why is my husband a hostage right. to the Iranians? I, I don't get it. So I'm asking yeah. what's going on in the minds of policymakers. And this is actually a good idea. Send them there to fight ISIS but they're held hostage. There's a gun to their head held by the IRGC. Because the IRGC has
1: been, it's been messaged the IRGC only controls a couple militias. The IRGC only has has very limited influence in the Iraqi army and the MOI, and Bader corps is not a big deal. But okay. Bader, i got—I got to finish this point because it's key here. Um, we have we have basically messaged that the only threat to American forces are Kitab Hezbollah, and AAH. And we've also messaged that they are outside of the Hashid al-Shabi. The Iraqi army is national, non-sectarian, and professional, and will work with the United States and will keep, protect the United States. The, the, the militias, these leaders say, we can wear any uniform of the Iraqi military, whichever one we want. The MOI forces, the ISAF forces, are primarily Shia Barakor. They were Kurdish when I was there in 07. They were all politicized, replaced by Maliki. So we did it because it sounds good. We're, we're, we have a campaign against ISIS. We are helping a, a coalition. And remember, the messaging early came out, we don't pick the coalition. Baghdad invites everybody in. So if Baghdad wants to invite the Iranians in, then you, we're not directly coordinating with them. We're working through the Iraqi military. The thing is, in these operation centers, there's an Iraqi advisor, there's an Iranian advisor. And as an American, and most likely has never been to Iraq before in a combat role. Uh, one of the experiences I had with Joel Rayburn is we went down to talk to the 82nd Airborne Division in 2014, the summer of 14, before they were going to Baghdad, and asked them, how many of you have been to Iraq before? And 75% of them did not raise their hands. And the ones that raised their hands were the senior officers and NCOs. That meant they didn't know they were going in. They didn't know what a militia member was. I know this is long, but this is, again part of the messaging that the Iraqi army is professional, don't worry about them, the bad guys are over there, and the Hashan al-Shabi are just Sistani volunteers. Uh, One of the interesting things about this trip, when you talk about the 200,000 Shia fighters being able to be used in in Syria, a large part of that's a reserve force. But I talked to an Hashan al-Shabi checkpoint in Mosul. One guy was a corps guy, one guy was a Sistani volunteer. The Sistani volunteer hadn't been paid for four months. The Barakur guy, had a better weapon, had a paycheck, and a nice uniform. The, the Sasani volunteer wants to be that guy. He wants to be the AAH guy. He wants to be the kitab Hezbollah guy. So it's a recruitment pool. It's coming up to the big leagues to join these IRGC uh, proxies, AAH, KH, and others. But that's that's the thing, Lee, is it sounds good when you talk to a US domestic audience and we're doing something against ISIS. But you know, if you talk to an Amnesty international person or an NGO Uh, Working in Iraq, they're wondering why the Americans have allowed Sunni civilians to be killed. We're dropping bunker buster bombs on a sniper position. And the civilian to ISIS fighter ratio in Mosul was 1 to 375, meaning one ISIS fighter to 375 civilians. That means if there was one ISIS fighter in this room, this would be a legitimate target for this coalition. And everybody else would be well, well he, they were in a
3: room. Eyes Please keep it to yourself. Please leave now. <laughs> <laughs> All right.
0: Halal, did you want to? Uh, you wanted to? An yes. Sorry about that. I just want to get that out. I, I, I,
3: well, there's. I, th- I think the, the immediate situation that you describe very well about what our experience has been in Iraq and what's the ways in which we've been played and so forth. But there's uh, to answer uh, to probably answer Lee's question. We would have to say take the long, the really long view. And Um, You know, we've been under attack uh, by the Iranians for a long time. Uh, They've killed many of our people, uh, going back to 1983 in Beirut. And we just chose not to particularly formulate it that way. We chose to um, uh, push it aside, and that was true. You would know better more the details, but I remember... You know, there, uh, in late stages of the Bush administration, 2006, 2007, 2008, every once in a while you would get a complaint about the uh, the IEDs being produced over the border in Iran, but we didn't do anything about it. And we once threatened, if I recall correctly, at a at a press conference in Baghdad that we would we knew where these things were being made, and then uh, suddenly there was a kind of pullback by the Iranians, which showed that they could be threatened if you threatened them, <laughs> and or you, they, your, their behavior could be affected. But we have never consistently uh, understood what they, how they uh, menace us and what they have done to us and sought, basically, even in human terms, to take revenge on them. Whereas with the Sunnis... Um, it's been the same thing for a long time. We, For a long time, we ignored the, the attacks uh, until we could no longer in, in uh, 9-11. Um, and, but thereafter, it, it's really been the... Uh, and it is partially because of the way in which the Sunni so, uh, jihadis express themselves, uh, it makes a very much greater impression. How we, and that was only if... If anything reinforced by the rise of the Islamic State, you can say we are responsible for that rise, and we are, among other things, uh, by calling by ignoring them and saying that they were a JV, as the President Obama said. But once they were there, uh, and the way in which they operated, uh, whether rightly or wrongly, solicited a response from us, and that's what got us into this. And it also had to do. I mean, it's I think some of these things are you know sometimes accidents. Had they not gone after the Yazidis, I'm not sure we would have. The, the, the previous administration would have gone to war against them. But the Yazidis seemed a special case. It was truly genocidal, a word that's misused, and um, that sort of impelled us forward. But otherwise, it might we might... You know, cynical, uh, hard-headed people might have said, okay, well, now there's pushback against the Iranians from a different quarter. Why not let it go forward? But that didn't happen.
2: Yeah, no, just very quickly. um, I I would actually sort of attribute uh, this failure, sort of this failure to identify and also the failure to act to essentially three things. First of all, uh, Mike mentioned in passing the JCPOA. Uh, I I think that's not an ancillary uh, argument. That's actually a central argument. Uh, The Obama administration, particularly when it was in the throes of negotiating this, made very concerted efforts not to highlight Iranian bad behavior that was different from the things they were negotiating on under the uh, impression that it would spike the deal. Uh, It would sort of create uh, circumstances where the Iranians would walk away. There was a systematic downgrading of our concerns on non-nuclear issues. Mm Um, the second is that uh, we, the last administration didn't, and this administration still does not have a serious strategy. and as I said, you know it makes us amenable to alternative outcomes in Syria, including those that might uh, be advantageous to the Russians to the Iranians. we don't have a settled idea about how we want Syria to end up, and as a result we're, we're flexible and the third, uh, and I think this is this goes to Iranian political culture, uh, is that you've seen over the last several years a marked change in the way Iranians, not the way Iranians behave, but the way Iranians talk <coughs> about what they're doing, about this insurgent empire that they're building. Mahmoud Ahmadinejad was, uh, I think, a very uh, useful personality For American political purposes because he was plain spoken in his radicalism. He said exactly what he was going to do in a way that we couldn't ignore. Uh, The current leadership is no less radical, right? That has to be emphasized. It's no less radical. It is just more urbane. And as a result, they don't talk much about the fact that they are creating this expeditionary force in Syria uh, where they're leveraging Pakistani Shiites and Yemeni Shiites and and, uh, Afghan Shiites. Uh, They don't talk about the fact that they are systematically subverting Iraqi politics. It doesn't mean it's not happening but they're just not as plain spoken about it. And as a result, uh, if we don't have a strategy, a countervailing strategy, it's easier to ignore.
0: Um, I guess I would say it's a, a point that Halel brought up before about the ad- not being clear that the administ- whether or not the administration has a serious strategy. And, I mean, I think, they may have. I, I I'm
3: not saying I, they don't. I, I think we're
0: seeing it. I mean, I think we're seeing what it is.
3: Well, um, I, I, it's, it's hard. May,
0: maybe by default. And I would say, I, 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 no, Ilan, I think the Obama administration had a very clear Syria policy. Absolutely. When we're talking about a serious strategy, like, how do we turn this to U.S. interest? I think that they had a very clear idea about that. Absolutely. And it had to do, uh, President Obama said this again and again, it had to do with respecting Iranian equities. The Russians right. came in. I think it was very clear. They had a very clear Syria yeah. strategy. And I think we are seeing it play out right now without, when are they going to have to, when are they going to have to adjust, Mike, for, I mean, to salvage, or maybe they believe, as the Obama administration (laughs) did, that, no, this is actually in the U.S. interest, we will deal with the Iranians, and just one, and just, when Halal was talking about, you know, it, it going back away, it struck me, you can look, and you can go back, and it was like, no, every administration going back to Reagan is trying to make some sort of accommodation with the Iranians. And that's true. But there are other things as well. There are other American political institutions, bureaucracies, including the Pentagon, including the State Department. What role do they have? You can look and make a case consistently. Well, actually, I guess the Pentagon would rather deal with the Iranians than other people. It's pretty consistent going back. Why do back. you
3: think that's true? Why do you think that... What's the evidence for that? What do you think, why do you think that would be?
0: I think we've talked about... We've talked about it. Mike made the point about... Well, you know, they pushed back a little bit in Iraq, and you said they didn't do much about the announcement for the, uh, uh, you know, uh, talking about the IEDs. Why aren't we seeing anything now? I mean, what is the issue here? They're not being challenged. Uh, no one's asking them to do anything different. Who? The U.S. press. Okay. Congress.
1: No oh, American, I, I mean,
0: like, who's not being challenged? You mean the, the, administration the administration? is not being
1: challenged to do anything different in Iraq. I mean, literally – the Mosul operation is touted as a success. It, it is not. It is not a success. Why do you think that no one was paying attention to that? Because it sounds good. It's a good talking point. I mean, nobody was paying attention when, when Obama was putting in his ISIS strategy in Iraq also. You know, we're working with a professional military. The, the Iranians have been invited in. There, there's easy talking points. The, the administration's focus, their strategic audience, their target audience, is domestic. It's Americans. The same thing with the Obama administration. It was always a domestic audience. It was never a message to the Middle East. It was never a message to Sunni regional allies. Uh, But they were still the unintended audiences of their strategic messaging. (laughs) And they heard it loud and clear. The Americans are ceding
0: responsibility in these key areas to Iran. The 20 million soldiers of the you, Middle East. Why don't you think that there is more? I mean, in that regard, you would think, See, wait, actually, there is there is a Crusader-Safavid alliance. You we, would think there would be more noise about this. Well, because we've been so in Afghanistan for like.
1: 17 years, and we, we're back in Iraq, and people will say, well, you were in Iraq for 13 years, or you were in Afghanistan <laughs> for 16 years, and, and those of us that were actually there say, no, we were there 16 times. We we ran our foreign policy like uh, Schneider ran the Washington Redskins when he was trying to win a Super Bowl every year. We changed out the team and tried something different. It didn't work. We changed out the team and tried something different. There was no consistency. The only consistent actors were Iran, China, Russia, and the Saudis. And everything's accelerated. I mean, the, the, the level of trust the United States has in the Middle East now is at its lowest level. Even with our allies like Israel, you know, what is the U.S. going to do? And I think as long as the president receives positive feedback on his, we're going to kill ISIS so hard they'll be tired of dying. You know, we're going to kill ISIS so hard and we're going to destroy ISIS cities that like, oh, that's great. I mean, I, I watched the news and I saw a U.S. aircraft using AC-130 AC gunships. To attack civilian convoys leaving Fallujah, and everybody high-fiving each other on set, not thinking about, hey, ISIS only had 1,600 guys in here. Why is there, you know, 30,000? Why is there a convoy of 30,000 people leaving Fallujah and being targeted? Uh, those questions aren't being asked. I've been talking about this for three years now. I've talked to people in the National Security Council that say, Mike, I'm tired. There's No one's going to change this. No no one wants to do this. It's too hard. So everything right now is based on temporary well, that alliances. Might answer,
0: when, when I was speaking about the Iranians, that might answer Hillel's question. Why do I think that it's going that way? People just aren't fighting. Yeah, it's temporary alliances, temporary solutions. Why not? The, the Iranians are fighting hard. The Iranians want it. The Iranians have this, they have that, forget about it. Iranians are, have sold themselves
1: as a responsible government to, our, to the P plus, P5 plus one, to our administration. I mean, you literally had an Iranian talking point that Iran is a key ally in the fight against ISIS, a key U.S. Yes. ally in the fight against ISIS. And uh, you know, when, when you hear those things and you can't change someone's mind, I can see why you can get exhausted working 18-hour days for $150,000 sitting in a a partition in the NSC saying, what what did I do? And and, and I, I feel for those guys. But, you know, we're looking at North Korea now. And real quick, what Iran is learning from North Korea is that, hey, if we put a deterrent in place, the U.S. won't do anything. When you talk to intelligence analysts about the North Korean response to an American uh, strike on any, anything in North Korea, it's, they will decimate South Korea, the northern part, the DMZ. Iran has said, oh, hey, listen, we need to develop a deterrent in Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon, and Beirut that will deter U.S. action against our nuclear program. They have it in Iraq. When I talked about us being outnumbered 20 to 1, uh, and Israel's warning that they're getting ready to have it in Lebanon with, with the effort to make Hezbollah rockets more precise. And the land bridge brings a different component. This is the first time you see tanks. But if they're Iraqi tanks, and more important, if they're M1 Abrams sold to the Iraqi government by the Americans, flying Iraqi flags, going into Kurdistan, and then the flag changing out, you know, to a Syrian flag, do we target it? Do, do the Israelis target it? I mean, and that's the brilliance of being an Iranian against the last two administrations. You are a chess player. And you get to sit across from somebody who is looking at their watch and and is willing to concede because it's just a chess game. It's more than that.
3: You know, I think it's worth observing at this point, and we'll see what happens. But um, one thing this whole discussion implies is we don't... I mean, if you take the Obama administration, I know your view and other people's view is that they really did want to deliver the region to Iran. I don't have a quarrel with that, but... At all events, the question is whether, before or after, we we have consistently had it was clear what we thought our interests were, what our crucial interests were, and absent uh, some notion that we really have something very substantial to um, uh, care about in the region, uh, then the you know the effort to deal with which was admittedly a very very bad situation, I and mean, we're. we're, we're talking here now about having to uh, proceed from uh, a very weakened position. So you have to have a strong interest in doing that. Um, maybe we will discover that. The, uh, it strikes me that the uh, the other possibility is there are people who do live there, who do have a strong interest in what goes on there, uh, who are allies of ours. Right. In the Syrian case, most obviously, Jordan, and Israel. And what may very well happen is they will feel obliged to act on their behalf and will then force the issue for us. But how we'll behave in those circumstances, who knows. Uh, the same thing would be true in the Gulf where, uh, with the Saudis. And, um, so it may be that what, and as often as not, our poli- our strategies and policies do result from in an ad hoc way from what other people do. Uh, Going forward, it may be that the issue will be forced on us and we'll decide then, but it seems to me the other possibility is that there's a big thing going on that says we really do care about this region um, uh, because it really affects our vital national security interests in a very, very big way and therefore we need to we need to have a strategy that deals with our, our, our single greatest adversary, which is Iran. Inshallah. I'm just going to open it up. <laughs>
0: um, Gentlemen, right here, if you just hold on and
4: wait for the microphone. Thanks, and please identify yourself. Uh, Peter Humphrey, an intel analyst and a former diplomat. Um, we have this assumption that because Alawi are derived from Shia, that they are in one in fact the same thing. Um, if, Sorry, if, that, that who? that if the Alawi are historically derived from Shia, that they are somewhat the same thing. In fact, a, a, a normal Shia will look at Alawi the way a, a Lutheran would look at snake eaters. I mean, they're sure, they're both Protestants, but um, there's no love, natural love here between these two groups. And, and, and in fact, there's no love for al-Assad, who hasn't prayed five times a day his entire life. Iran's purpose, its top purpose, perhaps its only purpose, is is to amass uh, forces along the Israeli border. There's a reason it's called the Al-Quds force, the Jerusalem force. They want to uh, uh, get people in western Syria. They want to establish signals intelligence bases. They want ask, to establish Can yeah, you communists. ask us a question, please? The, quor- the question is, realizing that, don't you want to go to Iraq and say, when the time comes for the equipment surge across the Iranian-Iraq border along this corridor? To support those forces along Golan, uh, will the Iraq army be there to stop it? And failing that, do you want to go to the Sunni tra- tribes and say, if the government doesn't do it, will you do it? And failing that, do we have a strategy to bomb and strafe these forces uh, when they're in eastern Syria? I would just say we're
1: expecting the forces to be flying Iranian flags and they won't be. And, and so, the Iraqi army, like I said, I don't want to repeat myself. So the Iraqi army is not going to stop it. Uh, the Sunni tribes, Baghdad is going to not not allow us to arm the Sunni tribes, just like they didn't allow us to directly arm the Kurds. Now, when I say allow us, that we don't have to listen to that. You know, we we can we can do things. But I'm, I'm sorry, just yeah, to yeah, sure real sure quick sure. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah sure. Okay. Are you, are you okay with it? Yeah, yeah I'm, glad you, I'm glad you're looking at this. You've got all the right indicators. It's, it's, it's Just tell everybody in the intel community that, you know, these types of things, especially if you, with you looking
0: at this. Go ahead. Uh, the gentleman here. We'll get to you, And then we'll,
5: yeah. We said basically that the U.S. doesn't have the stomach to be the ones who are going to stop this from happening. I think that's correct. We're not going to put a big base in the middle there, but who lives there? All right? If you wanted to stop that land bridge... A Kurdistan, coupled with some sort of Sunni protectorate, cuts it off dead, and there's no longer any land bridge to go across. That requires a big fight with Baghdad or potentially creating that schism between the people who aren't as tight with Tehran. But so what? Has anything else been working? Do we have a better idea? What you just
1: described worked in the past. Exactly. Exactly. We made friends, and we
5: don't have to do us. The Saudis are willing to help and potentially put commerce and everything else, and if we ask, they might put some GCC troops in there to peacekeep in the the Sunni areas where the Shia militias are not welcome. They just are afraid, like you said, Mike, that Iran is a stronger tribe. If we show that we're willing to cross Baghdad on that, recognize Kurdistan, and say that the Sunnis maybe get a protectorate and some point self-determination, we just shut that land bridge down.
1: Can we do that? We have to change. Bagh, we have to change DC's mind on Baghdad. Right now, you'll be t- the administration will tell you uh, that every, all those forces you just mentioned would have to be invited in. We would have to be invited in. We would have to be able to get permission. So it's not about rebuilding trust. Like, like, I don't think we have that opportunity. But leverage is different from trust. We we have leverage. Leverage is more important than than getting buy-in that. You know, just because somebody says, yes, we're going to do
3: something, doesn't mean they will. Leverage changes that. Actually, you can get trust by not using leverage, by actually, in fact, ignoring what, uh, yeah. whether people care what you do or not. And that actually yes. impresses yes. people one a way to bit do more, it. especially in that part of the world. So, yes, I think it would be possible to do. It's just it's before any of those people are going to take that step, we have to, the, there has to be uh, some notion that when they take that step, there's going to be a drone, and an airplane, up up there to back up, back their play, that's all.
0: And this gentleman right here on the first row,
2: right here. I thank you. Nate Flew, Intel Analyst. Uh, I was wondering how KSA's Crown Prince, MBS, and UAE's Crown Prince, MBZ, feel about the land bridge. I'm sorry, how
1: they what? They're, they're warning about the land bridge. Uh, everyone's warning about the land bridge, and they're being given reassurances that the Iraqi military will will not allow that to happen. Uh, that's, what's, that's what's taking place now. Um, they're not happy with that answer, necessarily. So as this continues to unfold, a lot of, again, most people don't think this is in place yet. It is in place. As, as that evidence, it's up to the Sunni regional powers to engage our government. To, to do things to engage Baghdad, say we're not going to allow this to happen. If you reflag Iranian convoys with an Iraqi flag, that has to be some sort of violation. That has to be something that we, we need to look at, uh, putting leverage or, or you know building that trust by doing whatever we impose to keep Iraq from reflagging these convoys, and that's
3: what's being done now. I don't, you know,
1: but I'll have to touch on slowly. Well,
3: you know, the ref- I mean, I take your point we, that we would be somewhat reluctant to hit an an Iraqi, uh, you know, a a tank that is flying an Iraqi flag, even if it's even manned by Iranians, we would be reluctant. But (laughs) we don't simply have to uh, yield to that reluctance.
0: I don't mind, um, Mike, you were speaking before. I don't mind the idea if this administration just says, forget it, we're tired, we just want to give it to Iran. What I resent is the fact that the United States is being dragooned into enforcing the IRGC security architecture in the Middle East. I find that entirely perverse. I find that astonishing. Well, you'll be told, oh, we're not, we're not doing that.
1: We've, we've built a professional Iraqi military. You could literally have, if there was a counter debate to what we did today, you would have somebody sit right here and say, Mike doesn't know what he's talking about. The Iraqi military is a national military. It's a unity military. We have our advisors there. We're going to be there. We're not going to leave. And then I would simply say, ask them about border core. and And start looking at the platform of Iraqi prime minister candidates that are running in 18. And one of the top issues is exiting U.S. forces. Because, again, as President Trump continues to say, we're
0: winning the war on ISIS. We're almost done in Iraq. I think the administration has actually said, we're done in Iraq. Well, what's it going to look like? Let's say this war against ISIS is actually – done. Raqqa is about to fall. There's no reason for us to be what there. What happens? There's no reason for us to be there. This administration will say,
1: this was a success. Let's focus on something else. Let's focus on North Korea, China, Russia. Okay. That's that's what – everything I'm I'm hearing right. says that we're
0: winning. We've won. We, we used our partners. But actually, Iran is not going to be that big an issue, or Syria's not going to be. It'll be about the JCPOA, and that's what the focus is. The Iranian
1: influence in Iraq is exaggerated. There, that's what you'll hear. The influence uh, on the military forces is exaggerated. It's just not the case. Mike Pregent doesn't know what he's talking about. But I served there for five years as an intel guy embedded with the Iraqi military and their intelligence services. And know every one of these personalities, several of which I talked to in Cropper while they were detained for killing Americans, who are now leading parades in Iraq, who are now in higher positions in the Iraqi government and the intel and security apparatus, happy to
0: take on all challengers. Um, We're going to have one more question, I believe, this gentleman right here.
6: Thank you. Thank you very much. Rahim Rashidi from Kurdistan TV. Do you think uh, that Kurdistan's independence should be a reason to push back Iran and Iranian influence in the region? And how do you describe those pictures? This is not Lebanon. This is not Tehran. This is Basra. Right. Yes, okay. Real quick is
3: say what you mean uh about Curtis? Uh, <laughs> okay. No, no Curtis well, Curtis yeah, and whether well, I, I didn't put I independent. Should be our reason, the support for that would be uh, Yeah, but this is this is about this. And
1: we'll talk about that. But I do believe uh, supporting the Kurds is a lever on Baghdad. The one thing we haven't done, basically, and even Ambassador Crocker, who was there with General Petraeus at the time, has said that we basically have given Baghdad permission to be very tough on Kurdistan by our anti-Kurdish referendum position, which two years ago wouldn't have been this strong. A year ago wouldn't have been this strong. So I think the Kurdish referendum is a lever. Um, It's a way to say if we support the Kurds, then Baghdad – has to change its calculus. Ankara has to. Ankara has to change its its calculus. Tehran has to change it. So it's a lever. But we'll go. We have time for another question since we started late.
0: For, or do you guys want to answer this? I'm sorry, I'm talking too much here. Uh, okay, you want one more uh, gentleman right here.
6: Ahmad uh, Hashimi from Iran. Uh, so uh, I was wondering, uh, what is your stance on the? Uh, uh Sunni structure in Iraq is something similar to Kurdistan because everyone is excited about what's going on in Kurdistan but uh I, I'm, my personal experience uh shows that they are the most progressive the Sunni Arabs the most uh, urbanized the most secular people and but uh everyone is uh, targeting them including the panelists here so they are the, they are to blame for everything and uh, there's, I mean, Iranian's argument. So, so, so is there any, uh, any plan? Any? Do you have any idea that uh, we can counter this, uh, and uh, we create a, a an atmosphere that they can feel uh, better to uh, pursue their rights, not uh, using violence.
1: Oh, well, that's that's the one thing that. that... It's so concerning. The 20 million Sunnis of the Northern Middle East have been ignored since, since the, the issue in Syria started. Um, these were, these were people that we, we, we had, we, we asked to do very difficult things during the surge, during the awakening. Um, and I've said this many times, but one tribal leader and a group of tribal leaders met with one of the Americans that helped set up the awakening. And usually that man met him with hugs and kisses. Instead, he took out a bunch of military coins given to him by American commanders, and threw him at his feet and said, you, you betrayed us, you left us to die, you left us to reprisal attacks. The Sunnis were always waiting for the American strategy in Iraq to change. The Sunnis were waiting for the American strategy in Syria to change. They saw what we did during the awakening, the surge. We did not do any of that. The Sunnis are right not to trust us, not to trust Baghdad, and to look somewhere. And I, I say they look at what the KRG is doing, and support it to get leverage, not not to break away, but to support it. And the UN needs to look at. I don't know how is it that there's not a Sunni Lives Matter campaign when you've had <laughs> 500,000 Sunnis killed in this conflict. And you mentioned the Yazidis brought us, or Yazidis may have brought us into Iraq, or an American journalist may have brought us into Iraq. It matters when a government, any government, uses its military to punish a civilian population especially – not especially, but when it's so obviously done for sectarian reasons. Mike, I'm going to let – Sorry about uh, that. Yeah, yeah,
2: go ahead. Yeah, no, no, just to sort of – the second one Mike says, I think that's exactly right. And I actually think that part of the answer to that question is also to have a better understanding as Americans about uh, the dynamics that are in play in Iraqi politics, because the – polarized, sectarian nature of Iraqi politics is what's actually driving the Sunnis to the margins. And the more you can have a representative polity, the more you can have politicians that don't appear uh, overtly as strongmen, the more recourse there is to bring people back to the middle. And that's something that uh, – that's the dog uh, in policy terms that is embarking in Washington at the moment. We don't talk about the structure of power in Iraq and whether or not we are – we have agency to change it. We do. We do have agency to change it, because by nature of our involvement there, we just have to have an opinion about it. Um,
0: that's going to conclude our panel. Thanks very much for coming. Uh, thank you to Hudson Institute. And thank you for uh, – and thank you, Mike, Halal, and Ilan.